Who's mighty a fella from whom she call a black rock? No. We don't have reason. Got the blood of a whole lot of that general strike in 1913. They were batting into the ground and rings out by the harsh police. I love going down, down the Tarcastle Street, looking down the river. Looking at the ships coming from all parts of the world. Hello and welcome back once again to Time Waves on Rick Radio, our radio history of Dublin 4. Uh, today we have a special and somewhat self-referential episode in that we're actually going to be talking about the history of community radio in this area and in Ireland in general. Um, I'm joined by two really expert guests on the topic. Uh, they're both pulling faces as I say that. <laughs> I have uh, David Reddy. How are you doing? How are you keeping everybody? And Brian Green. Evening, Sherlock. Uh, now, I'll be chatting to the lads in a moment, but as ever, we're going to start out with a little insight into local history in times past uh, in this month. This is our August edition of the show. Uh, and I'm afraid to say that, as, as it often is today, there's very little that actually happens in August that I've come across, except for one very notorious event uh, that happened in 1649 locally, which was Cromwell's arrival in Ringsend on the 15th of August, 1649. Now, Cromwell apparently was a very, very poor sailor um, and his fleet arrived over in Ringsend with 8,000 men, 4,000 horses and a huge amount of vomit because everyone was continuously sick uh, across the two-day journey. Uh, He was greeted surprisingly uh, quite favourably by the local community because it would have been quite a quite a, a Protestant and loyalist community uh, at the time um, and he did make an attempt to curry favour with locals and with people in Dublin on his arrival obviously opinions would change drastically uh, in the months and years ahead um, so yeah we'll turn that particularly dark corner of or the dark page of Irish history and move on to my two fabulous guests uh, David do you want to tell me a little bit about your your own background in, in radio I guess yeah well uh, I'm from uh, Sandymount uh, all my life Live in the same house, so I'm a, I know the area pretty well. Uh, I was always interested in radio as, as a listener, and then when uh, I grew up a bit more, uh, listening to the, the pop music Luxembourg at night, and then in the uh, mid 60s, uh, Radio Caroline came on the scene, so we now had. Uh, daytime pop music rather than just having to wait for the sun to go down so we could hear hear Luxembourg. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the, the huge appeal of, of those major pirates at those at that time? Uh, well, uh, there was not really... Uh, it was just young fella music mm-hmm. uh, and that was it. And then in the our own scene here in Ireland uh, in the, I suppose, around about the 1970s, mid 70s, uh, a few pop stations started propping up, popping up around uh, the Dublin area, and I got to know uh, the owner and runner of one of these, and that was a, a guy called Billy Everill. Uh, and the station was out in Docky, and they used to come on the air every uh, Friday night and then uh, broadcast for a few hours before any officials uh, turned up <laughs> and turned everything off again. And uh, then uh, Billy turned up when the real pirate scene started in that he was an absolute wizard. 
at uh, making medium wave and later FM transmitters and he would have uh, put the original uh, Radio Dublin transmitter, then Big D, then uh, Kilkenny, uh, Carousel and I'm sure more but they're the ones that would immediately come to mind. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that, that was Billy's contribution. He, he got everybody heard mm-hmm. and a uh, very good quality signal uh, with all his work and very good audio. Mm-hmm. And was there a like was that a social phenomenon the the pirates at the time was it something you spoke about say in, in the classroom or among your friends group or was it simply something that you know you listened to in your in your bedroom of an evening? Yeah well these were daytime mm-hmm. the, you know oh, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. We, we now had a, a so it was like uh, I suppose you know you could ring up for requests and all that sort of thing and there the uh, DJs etc were, were talking about places and people that you know whereas uh, RTE uh, by its nature has to cover for everybody so mm-hmm. the Dublin scene would have been quite you know a small contribution but that's 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 what they were there for so it was uh, local radio was beginning to happen and it was, it was great it was very exciting and then the station that I became involved with uh, would have been ARD uh, when my uh, firstborn John in 1979 uh, arrived, uh, I actually, on the way to work out at the back of Dublin Airport, I would pass ARD's studio uh, up there at the top of Mountjoy Square in Belvedere Place. And uh, at that stage, I knew a couple of people in there just to talk to uh, over the phone. Uh, there would have been um, Mike Moran, who later became uh, Mike Maloney on uh, several stations. And uh, so anyway, I said, right, I, I could give you a dig out uh, if anybody wants to take requests and things like that and messages uh, on the breakfast show. I, I could be here at uh, maybe quarter past, half past seven on the way to work because I was up anyway. John made sure I was up. <laughs> <laughs> So that was agreed, and uh, the first morning I went in, I was meant to be helping Neil Dempsey. Mm-hmm. But when I arrived in, there was no Ian Dempsey, because <laughs> Ian and others had just been taken on by two of them. <laughs> and in Ian's place was a young fellow called Tony Garrett, who then eventually reappeared uh, as Garrett O'Callaghan, and is still broadcasting away. So it was, it was great fun. <laughs> <laughs> We, we might bring that story up a, little, a, bit, a bit later to yeah. the, to the uh, I guess, the days of community radio yes, locally. Yeah, yeah. But uh, if I can just turn to you for a moment, Brian, I mean, radio has been a presence in, in your life pretty much all your life. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about the significance, I suppose, to you of local radio and of radio personally to, to you and what it's meant to you throughout your life? It's meant a huge amount. So particularly the, the pirate scene of that era, because it was so damn exciting. And I was over in Bayside and across the water from Ring's End would flicker the signals because <laughs> uh, the water would carry medium wave signals much, much better. The salt water is famous for, for bringing it over. And FM in foggy conditions can be quite well brought over the, the water. So everything that was happening over here, I was hearing not too far away in Bayside and as a young person tuning around the dial it was just a kaleidoscope of interesting things from the far afield uh, Transworld Radio Radio Luxembourg the Soviet
immediate block were coming in on medium wave. Sweden was on on 1179 kilohertz, just down from Radio Dublin, and they had DX radio programs, Sweden calling DXers with George Wood. This was kind of the calling card for the radio enthusiasts to tune in and listen to the technology and the happenings of the industry on an international scale. It was the internet before the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think there was, you know, it was more rewarding than the internet in some ways and that you had to do a lot of the work yourself to actually, to actually, you know, get these signals into your, into your house? I think in a way the internet is too much for any one human to consume. If you ever went into Mm -hmm. a library and got dismayed by the fact that you won't be able to read all those (laughs) books, that's what the internet is. The radio dial from its uh, inception with frequencies and its changeover to cities' names like Leon and Mm -hmm. Hilverson and... It was so evocative, wasn't it, to see that on the dial, yeah. It was, but but it was consumable by any one human. Mm -hmm. You could spend a night going up half the dial and another night going up the other half of the dial and you'd covered much of what you could get in at your location for that time of year at that time of night uh, but it was enough entertainment and different sources of foreign language and foreign countries broadcasting in English uh, mainly at very high power during the Cold War and this was my youth this was the, the time you would have been broadcasting with AORD uh, it was very exciting and people who could do the transmitter stuff and set up community radio stations here in this area were just like little Mark Zuckerbergs of the day, but they were local. They weren't in California doing it for the whole world. They were here in Ringsend and Donnybrook and around. They had the... You, I think was it yourself that set up the community broadcasting cooperative and working with other people. You kind of moved it around from community week to community week yeah that's the way it, 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 it there was no plan at all just it happened in that the uh, original one was a radio sentiment and mm-hmm. how that came about was uh, the there was going to be community week in sentiment for the first time ever <laughs> and uh, one of the organizers uh, michael mcauliffe uh, knew i was involved in the radio and he listened to ard himself and he said uh, could you maybe get them to come out and do a bit of uh, tape a few things and maybe give the whole thing a bit of a plug? So, yeah, that's great. Yeah. So, yeah, I talked to the owners of uh, ARD, which would have been uh, Don Moore, Dave C, and uh, Paul Murphy at that stage. And uh, we went one better in that, uh, like all good organisations, there was a spare transmitter, <laughs> just in case uninvited guests are there was a meltdown a meltdown of some <laughs> sort there was a spare transmitter uh, so they said right that, that's what we could do why not bring it to uh, Sanyamont itself and uh, run it that way uh, so uh, Peter Gibney the uh, wizard uh, he set it all up and the gas thing is the actual particular premises uh, that uh, it was in on Sandy McGreen at that stage was a solicitor's office. Make <laughs> <laughs> matters even better. <laughs> it is now uh, Brown's Restaurant. Uh, so off we went. Uh, I'm sorry, Dave. What period are we talking about? Oh, here? sorry, 1982. 82, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 82. And then uh, what followed on from that uh, was that the uh, sorry, I, for for broadcasting staff, as they say, like I knew some of the lads in. Uh, ARD and others and uh, 
they came out and did a, a program. So it's like a, a couple of new people, the broadcasting became involved because they, they said, let's go down and have a, have a look-see at this. And uh, two that became national names uh, afterwards would have been Doug Murray, Electric Eddie, and uh, Suzanne Duffy, who had just recently moved to Dublin from Sligo. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came and did, did programs during the Community Week and great success and their careers went on that way. And then also uh, the gentleman of Dublin 4 who does not need a transmitter to broadcast and that was Charlie Sheen, one of the local uh, postmen. It was fantastic. And then we, others that would have been on board would have been Victor Ryan, uh, Aidan Leonard, uh, who, oh, Aiden, he was Aidan Stewart at that stage. Uh, who's working in the tax office <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Aidan went on to be manager of uh, RTE Gold mm-hmm. and others like that uh, Uncle Bren, the kiddies friend did a few programs, we now know him as Mrs Brown right. yeah. Yeah. So yeah. There, was, there was a whole series of uh, events like that, it just happened and then uh, folk down in Ring's End uh, were listening and their community week was coming up so hmm, I wonder they, they came to me, could we do, try and do something similar? So mm-hmm. well, should we, we'll give it a lash, you, you'll find us a premises. Actually, could you just, just uh, explain the concept behind the Community Week? Because it's, it's something that sounds very intriguing. Yeah. Well, the Community Week itself uh, was just a series of events mm-hmm. organised by the committee, uh, ranging from... Uh, there, was a, there was a fair bit of sport involved mm-hmm. because there are such good facilities around here. Uh, Sandy Mount's uh, main sporting activities took place in what's a Roslyn Park uh, rehab on the on the Strand Road. Mm-hmm. They have a quite a large green area there, and then when the Rings End it was happening in Rings End Park, mm-hmm. so there was there was a lot there, and then there was uh, various talent uh, competitions, um, table quizzes. And things that people just mm-hmm. got involved in. And obviously the, the radio was was able to piggyback on yeah, this. The, on this the radio was able to point people towards mm-hmm. them, but did not take from anything. Mm-hmm. It was just inform people. Then, of course, there was uh, requests and competitions on air. And it just generally brought the whole lot together. It started at uh, 10 in, in each morning and uh, f- finished at uh, 7 each evening. Mm-hmm. Bit of advertising for local businesses? Oh, very, uh, yeah, very well supported. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very well. And what, what sort of content would have been would have been broadcast during that week? Uh, well, there was. It was really up to the in, in individual presenters, mm-hmm. who uh, they 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 brought their own uh, bag of records, so <laughs> to speak. Uh, they had their their own style. Uh, they brought in their own various ideas. Um, but one a very good gentleman who did a little bit more serious side in interviewing uh, some of the local politicians and such, like like Rory Quinn, minister at the time, but it was all very interesting. Uh, a gent called John Murray, who uh, eventually went on to be uh, editor of the uh, Sunday Express. Mm-hmm. So he cut his, his teeth uh, uh, on the, the journalistic side. And was there a notable difference between, say, the the content in Sandy Mount and Rings End, or, or a different atmosphere, or anything notably different at all? I suppose uh, there was in that each area uh, mm-hmm. had its own characters. Like mm-hmm. I remember well at the the first visits to Rings End at uh, Lyrics Murphy, 
of course. Yeah, yeah. Very, very. Uh, he would have heard in our opening theme, in fact. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. That he he was a very uh, popular uh, contributor and such like. But uh, another gent that uh, came in and did a few bits on uh, Radio Sanimax, despite his position in uh, another broadcasting organisation, was Shea Healy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Shea was great fun as well. And uh, we had uh, Chris Berg in as well, because Chris Berg's uh, uh, good lady wife, um, I, I can't remember her Christian name now, but Morley is, was her surname, and she's from John's Road, just beside uh, Sandymount Tower. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, Chris was in as well. And wow, it was so it was, it star-studded. Was, it was open door. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's probably why it was successful, in that there was, if you wanted uh, access, come in, and as yeah. long as it sounded good and entertaining, but there was no, uh, and we were very fortunate as well at the time in that uh, no local politicians or anything like that tried to uh, use it as a platform for anything. Mm-hmm. The ones that did speak, and many did, it was purely around the community, community week itself and like. Absolutely, it sounds like a it very was great. yeah. No, yeah. It sounds like yeah. a hugely yeah. enjoyable and hugely worthwhile it was, it form was, of broadcasting. It was, great. it was great fun. Yeah, that's what it was, you know. And then at Christmas, you would put on the CBC would put on Snowflake, would yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. Well, Snowflake was just an idea that mm-hmm. some. But did it come from around this general location? Uh, no, uh, uh, Snowflake uh, was in uh, the first year. Was in the at one stage there was a record shop. Mm-hmm. In, in, in Sandymount and uh, what is there now is there is a uh, a shop called Nourish just beside McConnell's and sorry just to explain to people what yeah. we're talking about is a precursor to today's Christmas FM in, in effect uh, I suppose it was mm-hmm. and again it was just purely for fun mm-hmm. you know because uh, it was different from the community because in that there wasn't actually anything major going on yeah you know, contingent. There may be one or two things like a, a school's Christmas concert. Oh, sorry, I should have mentioned the schools were very, very uh, mm-hmm. active uh, in our show. Fantastic. Uh, we might just pick up on that again a bit yeah. later, but I was just going to ask you, Brian, that this kind of quasi-legal element that it had where it would be acknowledged by, you know, politicians and so forth, but of course this is all technically unlicensed broadcasting. Uh, was that, to you, was there a bit of a frisson to that when you were young, getting involved in it, or did you just want to get out in the airwaves? Of course, because the the clandestine, semi-illegal, is it legal, is it not, uh, does make it a little bit more exciting and something <laughs> as a magnet to attract you to it uh, because you might have this kind of dialogue with your parents you now do do your homework you won't pass the intercert listening to pirate radio uh, <laughs> and i suppose it, down through the years parents have had these problems with bebo and facebook and now tiktok and my parents in their youth might have had it with jimmy savile on radio luxembourg in the late 50s early 60s uh, so it, it's always been kind of a, a counterculture. culture 
uh, youth thing that it was playing the rock and roll of the day, be it the Beatles or uh, Elvis or in the 80s, I don't know, Duran uh, Duran, whatever was in the charts. And the youth would be attracted to that in a huge way. And me, like many youths, would be attracted to it. But I wasn't really listening for the music. It was more the idents, the imaging, mm-hmm. the ad breaks, the personalities and the presenters and the comings and goings of stations because of their nature they would fire up for two weeks in the summer over here and you'd be excited by the fact that that here's something that wasn't there two weeks ago and it won't be here in two weeks time what is it and you know you, you get the scarcity of it itself would make it attractive mm-hmm actually something you might just both kick around for me a little bit like when people think about the pirates they probably think about you know the super pirates and nova and the kind of the glamour and the the pop music but i guess that what you guys were primarily involved in was that other element of broadcasting that wasn't served by you know national radio at the time which was community broadcasting what's the importance of community broadcasting do you think Whoever wants to take that first. Well, I I think there were so many of them and their importance was that they could do, like today, what the big guys can't do. They can be local. So they can be relevant right down your street, right down your community. And I suppose with BLB and Bray and... uh, NDCR and Kulak and various incarnations of those stations and what was happening here with the community stations and other community, Dublin Community Radio, which would have started life down the coast from here and uh, moved into the city centre. Uh, all of these were aspiring to do what RTE could never do. And RTE had a van and it drove around the country bringing you community radio from the van. And they did an interest and a stake in providing that service. But it, it often became that the local community had Orti come out, train the people, put the radio station on, was it 202 metres medium wave? Mm-hmm. And then they'd leave after their two-week, four-week stint. And then the local pirate would come on on that wave <laughs> band exactly where Orti was and then continue on for the next 40 years. That that happened in Yall, it happened up in County Mayo, it happened across Louth. Being local was what their advantage was over RTE and over those super pirates so Mm -hmm. the thing that made them quaint and interesting was that it was that local guy on the radio Mm -hmm. and David the I suppose one of the one of the things about doing any kind of broadcasting or doing anything in the public sphere at all now is that you have more or less instant feedback on it you know people can be calling you names on the internet within within minutes of hearing it Um, did you get any what was it harder to get feedback or to to know how your broadcasts were being received in those days or you know were were people stopping you on the street or were you getting letters in or anything like that yeah well we we had a phone line Mm -hmm. uh, borrowed from uh, uh, you know some premises nearby for, for the duration of the community week uh, but there were so many events on that you would meet you would meet the listeners mm-hmm. not only were you, you, you broadcasting you're actually meeting them as well and uh, yes people would be dropping in requests because it was open door as well yeah. they weren't hidden yeah. away anywhere uh, like one year we were in the uh, front window of what is now Mario's restaurant on Sandy McGreen, so you, you couldn't get any more mm-hmm. uh, public, if, if you know what I mean. But every no, there was no secret. And then the another couple of times we were in what would have been uh, the Department of Labour's uh, FOSS uh, Community Employment Scheme, their office, uh, just up from O'Reilly's pub, 
in uh, Sandhya. Uh, so, and uh, in Ringsend, we were uh, above one of the shops on Thorncastle Street. And the DJs would do the teenage disco and the adult dance mm-hmm. afterwards. So mm-hmm. the yeah. DJs got rapport with their listenership when they paid a pound yeah. to go to the hop that night. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so very direct yeah. connection with the audience. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everybody knew everybody. Uh, like one day, a great broadcaster around here uh, was Paul Doyle, unfortunately, now deceased, and uh, his good friend uh, Dave Daly, uh, Morris Costello. Uh, and they had started off the community thing long before I was really in, with, uh, along with Joe King in Grand Canal Street. They mm-hmm. had a a station there but it was not particularly uh, centred on any an event mm-hmm. that's what's different from what I became involved in and it yeah. just started, it drifted into it it wasn't the plan just drifted into it that uh, the came on the air maybe two or three days before the community week started uh, promoted all the various things and also it was very useful for getting uh, entries into the various uh, mm-hmm. Competitions and things like that that the community week were running, you know, between uh, the entries maybe channeled through the radio station or channeled through the local school or something, mm-hmm. something appropriate. So that was so it it added but didn't take from it. Yeah, and how, how long did those broadcasts continue? Was it throughout the eighties or uh, eighty two to eighty eight? Mm-hmm. And so up until the point that, that the pirates effectively were, were forced off air. Well, it, it, it was not actually that that, that, that mm-hmm. stopped it. It was the community weeks themselves yeah, stopped. Yeah. Uh, because you may remember uh, there were uh, some uh, dreadful uh, accidents in soccer stadiums, a fire and a mm-hmm. crush Bradford, and yeah, like in, yeah. in the UK and elsewhere. And that effectively put public liability insurance beyond the reach of community groups. And that's why the community weeks stopped, mm-hmm. because you could not get insurance. And the 88 ones only happened in this area of uh, Sandymount, Ringsend and Donnybrook, because the local Dublin Corporation organiser for community affairs, uh, Terry Vaughan, got the corporation to pay for the insurance. Mm-hmm. The corporation insured the three events and uh, unfortunately that was a once-off. It couldn't be repeated. Yeah, but, but it's it left a tremendous legacy in, in oh, the area. Oh, yeah, 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 the huge gap. Like, mm-hmm. people still talk about it. Can't we have them again? I wish we could. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can now, I don't know. <laughs> well, hopefully, yeah. through the radio station, through the community centre here, we can we can Maybe, rekindle yeah, yeah. some of that yeah, some yeah, of that atmosphere. Yeah. Um, Brian, just, I guess, as we're, as we're approaching the end, um, What's the obviously that was one kind of high point of community broadcasting in Ireland? How, how would you assess the the status of community broadcasting today in Ireland? I think it's there's 21 full time community radio stations mm-hmm. in the Crail network. Uh, there are many other aspirant stations vying to become uh, fully fledged broadcasters. There's another kind of undercurrent of online only stations mm-hmm. and people who are taking hybrid approaches like this station, and I think the interest of people getting involved and wanting to advocate for themselves and have what we know as radio, whatever that is, is it audio content, is it transmitting on FM, whatever it is, people want to be involved in radio. And I think that's a tremendous legacy. This is a 
August uh, 2022 and we're 100 years since the first radio advertisement was broadcast on radio in the world and here we are 100 years later and people still want to be setting up radio stations and I think back to that period when the community weeks and fortnights were covered by radio by local people and I think would you have the internet of today would you have the Facebooks if you look skyward from here mm-hmm. and you can mm-hmm. see some some Facebook buildings would you have them come into the community and do that would they offer to do it and they don't they are more prominent to make a political point and edit it out <laughs> if it's not suitable they they are here in that the gentrification and the house purchases of the local area are fueled by the workers in these uh, global companies but are they putting into the community fortnights and the civic uh, beauty of the area and I don't think they are now if they are I, I, I'll stand corrected but I wish they would could could they empower the local community to advocate for themselves through digital media like uh, Dave mm-hmm. and others did with AM and FM technology because I think it is important that's what it is that that people do use the tools available and today it's the great anti-boredom device is the smartphone not the transistor radio give people the tools to use them in a way that makes society better for where they live. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it's a very powerful point. And David, just before we, we wrap up, obviously, as I said, I, I think those broadcasts and, and those, you know, just the mere fact of the community weeks and the spirit that they, they kind of engendered uh, left a, hopefully left a, a good legacy. But how did this change you, I suppose? What did you learn from, from that experience? And did it influence, you know, subsequent years of your life? Well, I, I got to know an awful lot of people that otherwise I wouldn't have known uh, from just my living in Sandyrent in that, as I mentioned there, we were here in Ringsend, we were in uh, Donnybrook and we were in Glasnevin. And the connection with Glasnevin was one of the presenters that you may know as uh, Michael Nugent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, come on, we we'll go over to, the, over to this. And we did, and it was great. You know, it, it, and we were actually in a caravan outside uh one of the local shops with a young Nails Mahoney yeah exactly exactly yeah. we didn't know I didn't know all of the laughter so. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was that type of thing so you got to know loads of people and then um, you know being as I say in this particular area I'm around the area so um, you know, I keep running into people that uh, perhaps I would, wouldn't have known mm-hmm. you know that I met first uh, during the 80s uh, that was a great, uh, so like uh, I can certainly walk into uh, several local uh, pubs and uh, <laughs> might meet someone. I, I know, remember those days, how oh, could we have one back, you know? Yeah. So uh, that's what I'd love to see is that um, that the, the government uh, corporation or whoever uh, would grasp the nettle and let's have a... Pro- the community weeks back, uh, because I think if if the financial side of it could be sorted out, uh, I, I I would not be surprised that uh, say in Sandymount Rings and Donnybrook anywhere in the city, mm-hmm. uh, we give it a try. Absolutely, that's something I'd mm-hmm. I'd echo, and I think something yeah. people are crying out for is and that kind of sense ra- of connection. On the radio side, what I I think something Brian was saying there. Um, that could be facilitated by uh, the authorities nowadays is to have a central 
FM transmitter and a central AM transmitter uh, that the various mobile or uh, community stations for community weeks could link back to. So there's no big, huge technical. It's only a matter of literally plugging in a phone line or something and you're mm-hmm. on air. And the maybe RT themselves could or somebody could, could provide the... Because it would not be expensive just to cover the Dublin area. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll see some movement in that direction and some movement uh, in favour of, further in favour of community radio, because I, I think we all agree it's a, it's a vital local resource. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for, for joining me on Time Waves. Uh, if you want to, if you want to uh, get in touch with us, you can reach us on rickradio2020 at gmail.com uh, and we'll see you next month for the next edition of Time Waves. Would you find a fella from ancient call a black rock? No. We don't have rings in. Got the blood of a whole lot of that general strike in 1913. They were batting into the ground and rings in by the harsh police. I love going down, down the Tarcastle Street, looking down the river, looking at the ships coming from all parts of the world.